and the last chapter of Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 16. And we'll read together from verse 1. It's page 1024 in your pew Bibles. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Amen. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ lives. We thank you that he is our good and faithful shepherd. May we hear the voice of our shepherd in this time together under the authority of your words. And may it be our joy to listen attentively and to follow wherever he leads trusting in his love and goodness to his people. Thank you for all that you intend to do in each of our lives. May we know your nearness, your presence, your power, and may it be our joy to humble ourselves in our listening and in our living in the light of your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as a pastor, you find yourself speaking at a lot of funerals, and usually one of your responsibilities is to pay tribute to the life of the one who has just died. And in that time, you spend a lot more time speaking about the life the person lived uh, as opposed to the death that the person died. Who wants to spend time thinking about someone's death, especially about the death 
of a loved one. No one wants to dwell on something like that. Mark undoubtedly was a man that loved Jesus. He lived for Jesus. He died for Jesus. He died telling people, urging people, uh, exhorting people to leave the gods of their youth behind and to place their faith in Jesus. And that was not a popular message with all, and it led to his martyrdom. So there can be no doubt whatsoever that Mark truly loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come to his gospel, which is essentially is, is Mark's biography of Jesus, we might find it surprising the things that he adds in and the things that he leaves out. We might find it surprising the things that he chooses to emphasize and to dwell on and to focus our attention on. For example, there is no mention of the birth of Jesus in Mark's gospel. If you were to turn to the start of Mark, there's no Bethlehem, there's no baby Jesus, there's no wise men from the east or shepherds tending their flocks by night. The first time Mark introduces us to Jesus, he is being baptized in the Jordan by John. He is a grown man. Nothing of his formative years, nothing of his home life, nothing of his uh, apprenticeship with Joseph. We are introduced to Jesus as a grown man being baptized, prepared for his few years of ministry before his death. And the pace of the gospel, as you work through the, the first chapters, it, it is, is lightning fast. Everything is short and snappy. If you've got a very literal translation, you'll see the same phrase time and time again, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. It's as if Mark is in a hurry to take us somewhere. And it becomes clear later on in his gospel where it is he wants us to be. Because as we come to Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, as we come to Jesus' journey to the cross, the pace suddenly slows down. Mark is eager for us to dwell on the journey to Jerusalem, to dwell on the death of Jesus. More than a third of Mark's gospel is dedicated to the death of Jesus. I've heard one scholar say Mark is essentially a passion narrative with an extended introduction. I'm not sure uh, about that. That may be a an overstatement, but he is certainly keen to take us to the death of Jesus, the man that he loved. And what a horrible death it was. Those of us who were at uh, the Ebenezer on Friday night will remember Mark Nelson's description of the horror of crucifixion. Why does Mark, who loved 
Jesus so profoundly want to take us so quickly to the death of his Lord? Why does Mark seem to think that his death is so significant and so good? Well, we find the answer to that question in the last chapter of his gospel in chapter 16. So we'll work our way in to that chapter. In Mark 15, verse 37, uh, he says, With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. By this point in time, the disciples have deserted Jesus, these young men who seemed to be so brave, who seemed to be so close, who seemed to be so committed to Jesus, are nowhere to be seen. But there was a group of women who had remained faithful and true and who stayed as close as they were allowed, as they were able in the culture of the day to Jesus. So verse uh, verse 40 of chapter 15, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So Jesus is buried. There is nothing for a day. It is a day of rest. There is the Sabbath. And the next day, the Sunday morning, three women get up early and head to the tomb. They head to the tomb with their spices to anoint the body of Jesus. Think about their expectations as they travel to the tomb. They're expecting nothing but a dead body. They go because they believe that it's the right thing to do, not because they're anticipating a happy ending. And as they approach the tomb, they see the stone has been rolled away. As they enter the tomb, they see the body of Jesus isn't there. We don't associate emptiness with anything good normally, do we? As you may have noticed in the children's talk, I still to this day feel a wee bit cheated, a wee bit disappointed when I bite into my hollow chocolate Easter egg. They look so sizable, they look so substantial, I expect so much, and alas, I receive so little. And the Bible speaks of emptiness in a negative way too. So the Apostle Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. And the Apostle Peter says, you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you 
from your forefathers. In life, we get disappointed. We get discouraged by empty things, not just chocolate Easter eggs. We get discouraged and we get disappointed by empty words, by empty promises. Disappointment after disappointment. We expect so much and we receive so little. But the empty tomb is not a place of disappointment. Nothing could be further from the truth. The empty tomb is a place of hope and of joy and of life. It wasn't that the woman went expecting a lot and receiving a little. It's turned on its head. They went expecting a little and received so much more. They went expecting death and found life. They went expecting sorrow and found joy. In the empty tomb, which actually, if we're being precise, and if we're continuing to stay in the text of Scripture, you'll notice wasn't empty at all. Because in the tomb, they met someone, they met an angel, they met a messenger who issues them with a twofold command. We might say, Firstly, come and see. That's verse 6. Do not be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Come and see. He is alive. Death has been defeated. Paul uses an even stronger word. Death has been destroyed by Jesus. This is not a miraculous healing. This is not good medical care that has kept the body going, although it seemed to be dead. Jesus was truly, really dead. And now he was truly, really alive. This is resurrection life, death has given way to victory. That is a good news that we all long to hear. We are all very different people. We have all different uh, longings, different desires, uh, different backgrounds, different personalities, different ambitions, and yet all of us, no matter who we are or where we are from, all of us long to hear that death has been defeated. I've been at a number of funerals now uh, where I have heard secular humanistic poems read, uh, and my pastoral advice to you, if you are invited to the, or if you hear of the funeral of someone, and uh, you know that it will be led by a, a humanist, my pastoral advice is to go to that service. Go to pay your respects, but also go to hear and to, to feel and to see and to sense 
the hopelessness and the emptiness of that way of life. So these poems that I have heard have each, very eloquently I have to say, have each said that death is natural, that we're all part of the earth, and when we die, the atoms and the stuff that makes us just sinks back down into the earth from where we came, and it presents that as a very natural and very beautiful thing. But the reality is, it doesn't feel natural, does it? Even when death is expected, it it still shocks us, it still horrifies us, it never feels normal, and it certainly doesn't seem beautiful. We are not material to be thrown in the brown bin for recycling when we are done. We are human beings created in the image and likeness of the eternal God. Death is our enemy. It is never our friend. And these courageous, loving women were the first to find the glorious news that Jesus had defeated death. Jesus had defeated her last and greatest enemies. In the words of the Apostle Paul, our Savior Christ Jesus has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This victory over death is not just for Jesus. It's not that we just get to stand on the sidelines and see this perfect man conquer death and applaud at his achievements. No, Jesus did this not for him, but for us. Jesus offers this victory over death to all who will simply come to him and trust in him with the faith of a little child. Jesus' victory can be our victory. He is our forerunner. He has gone ahead, and all who follow him will follow him to eternal life in the place that he has prepared for us. But that does not mean that everyone will experience this victory. Verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. It's the same message we read in John's gospel, isn't it? John 3, 16 and 17. Those who cling to their sin experience what the Bible calls the second death, death beyond death. But those who open their arms to the Savior will share in His life forever. I am the resurrection and the life, He says. He who believes in me will live even though He dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Come and see. And secondly, go and tell. The angel commands and commissions these women to be the first evangelists the first witnesses to the risen Christ 
This is more important than we might realize looking at this passage through our uh, 21st century Western eyes. Because in the first century, a woman's testimony was of no real worth or significance or value. So had the early church made up this story of the resurrection of Christ, they would never have made these women the first witnesses. It would have been Peter, James, and John that were the first witnesses. Not Mary, Mary, and Salome. It's never very long after people encounter the risen, living Lord, the good news of the gospel before they are commissioned to go and to tell others. If you look at the verse, uh, I think I finished at verse 7, but verse 8 says, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So they, weren't, they didn't have it all together. They didn't have all the answers to any of the questions that they might be asked. And sometimes we are afraid to speak. We're afraid to tell people of the good news of Jesus because we think, well, we don't have it all together yet. I don't have all the answers. I don't have everything sorted perfectly in my head. And if that's the bar that we set for ourselves before we speak of Jesus, then we will never speak of Jesus. But these women, though they were confused, though they were afraid, though they were bemused by what they had seen, they were obedient. They went and they spoke to the disciples of what they had seen. And if we go and speak of what we have seen, of what we have heard, of what we have come to know in Jesus, then no matter how messed up we feel in our heads and our hearts, God will be faithful to use us, to use our words in ways that go beyond our expectations for Him. And we'll be amazed and enthused we see him use us as weak and as uh, frail as we are. So the first people the angel tells the women to inform, you'll notice, are the disciples. And, and you know, we, we are still to tell the disciples the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. We are still to preach that message to each other. We are to encourage each other with this news. Not just the world out there, but our brothers and sisters in here need to hear time and time again of the victory of Jesus. We are so prone to being discouraged by life. We are so uh, apt to forget the good news that we believe. And we need to constantly be encouraging each other, reminding each other that we are on the winning side, that our Lord lives, that our story ends in triumph, that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. But look more closely at what verse 7 actually says. Uh, but go tell His disciples and Peter. That's interesting, isn't it, that, that the women are told to go and to tell the disciples and Peter. So Peter is his own wee special category by the side of the disciples. Why is that? 
Well, surely that's because Peter has denied Jesus three times. And in the most kind of despicable and cowardly of ways, the most ungodly of ways, he denies Jesus. It is not just failure, it is spectacular failure. And the angel wants the woman, the disciples, and Peter all to know that his cries have been heard, that his repentance has been accepted, and that his guilt has been forgiven. We might think that what Peter did was unforgivable. Even if all fall away, he said, I never will. But Jesus forgives what we would think unforgivable. And he is brought back to Jesus, brought back into community to fellowship with the disciples. And of course, God uses him in wonderful ways for his plans and his purposes. And maybe you identify with Peter today. You've said the same words. You've maybe sung them many times. I surrender all. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. But you have turned back. Maybe not physically. You're still here. Still come to church. You know the way it works. You know when to stand and when to sit and what to sing and what to say. But internally maybe you've turned back. In your mind and in your heart, you've stopped your journey with Jesus. Well, come to Him this Easter Sunday to find forgiveness and fullness of life in Him again. He is more than able and more than willing to receive you and to restore you. Maybe you identify with the women. You've come to church this morning in the same way that those women went to the tomb that first Easter Sunday morning with very low expectations, not really expecting anything good to happen, but in the words that you have sung or in something that I have said or as the Scripture has been read, you have encountered something of the presence of the real living Lord who offers everlasting life and who commands complete surrender to Him. But rejoice because Christ is risen and He offers resurrection life, life in all of its fullness to all who come to Him, to all who call on Him, to all who trust in Him. So come to Jesus, give Him your life, give Him your all in glad and grateful response to all that He has given and all that He will give to you. The story of Jesus did not end on Good Friday. The story of Jesus goes on into eternity. And by His grace, each of us can be a part of that story. At the end of the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, all of their life in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page, 
Now at last, we were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This wonderful story will go on forever. And I encourage you this Easter Sunday to make sure that you are part of it by giving your all to Jesus. May we be able to say with Isaac Watts, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And that's the hymn that we stand to 